0: Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Jackie Ogega, author of Home Is Us, a memoir of her experiences growing up in Kenya. Among other topics, she recalls stories from her childhood marked by gender-based violence and the resiliency demonstrated to her by strong women in her community. Dr. Ogega is an inspiring leader dedicated to promoting gender equality, social inclusion and the empowerment of women and girls. She is currently the Senior Director of Gender Equality and Social Inclusion at World Vision. She founded her organization, Mapunzi Empowering Women and Girls, supporting hundreds of women and girls in rural villages in Kenya through education, violence prevention and livelihoods. She has a doctorate in peace and conflict studies and a master's degree in gender and development studies. Jackie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Aaron.
0: It's so wonderful to have you here. And we are talking about this wonderful book that you've written, Home is Us, a story about hope and resilience. And I came across this book when my good friend and colleague, Dr. Sherry Tizza, was reading this book, I believe for a book club that she's involved in. And she said, you have to read this book and interview Jackie. And I did just that I read the book. And I found it so inspiring and moving. And I agreed, I just had to interview for this. So I'm excited to have you here. And I'm really looking forward to talking with you.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And, and I'm glad that we share a friend, a very dear friend.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. exactly. First off, Jackie, we have a lot to talk about to dive into this book and what it's about, but I'd like to start with just hearing a little bit about who you are as a person, Mm. your background, maybe some of the work that you do. Who is Jackie Ogega?
1: Wow, that's a big question. Yes. (laughs) I think uh, like Michelle Obama says, I'm still becoming, but let me just share that I consider myself a social scientist. I, you know, studied gender equality and social inclusion also of course education. I also think I'm an educationist and also studied peace and conflict studies think the lens that I have is a feminist, but also, you know, sociological um, perspective that really looks at uh, issues. Um, sometimes I think anthropological as well, ethnography and, and all of this, that kind of good stuff. I like to immerse myself into the culture of others and to try and uh, understand them from a sociological perspective. That's because also that's how I understand myself. So I consider the personal to be very public. My academic career has focused on research around social issues, particularly on uh, gender equality and social inclusion issues. But I started off as a, a school teacher, actually. I taught high school for eight years in Kenya before I moved to the United States and and started working in international development uh, back in Africa before I moved to the United States. So my work focuses primarily on international development and peace building. I've worked with various non-governmental organizations, NGOs as we call them, Mm. international ones, uh, but also uh, you know, I have taught college uh, gender and development studies, and other you know training courses for U.S. government like USAID. Much of my work involves traveling to different countries to manage or uh, monitor programs that we work with the US government, most of the public grants, but also with public donors and private donors as well. So mostly fundraising, program quality assurance uh, and technical support to uh, international development programs across the world. So I'm currently based in Washington DC as the Senior Director for Gender Equality and Social Inclusion for World Vision. And also I volunteer for a, a, a small nonprofit, I co-founded called Mpanzi, which works uh, with women and girls in Kenya. Wow. I think that's a mouthful, but that's who I am.
0: It's amazing work that you're doing and just very yeah. meaningful. And I think when I first connected with you, you were on your way to Bangladesh or something. So that's true. Yeah. You're going to some amazing places to do your work. That
1: is very. Very true. Yeah, I'm still um, I just got back from Bangladesh actually two days ago where we have a wonderful program on food security and livelihoods with the U.S. government, uh, which we call Nobo Jatra, New Beginnings. And also other you know, emergency uh, programming with the Rohingya Muslims. You know, It was wonderful to go and monitor some of the work that we do. the ground with women and girls men and boys and other vulnerable populations especially those who are internally displaced and also the host communities who are supporting the rohingya crisis
0: so let's talk a little bit about home is us what was your inspiration for writing this book tell us about that
1: every time i i get that question i think about how my life and my work is constantly like a flashback on (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm. my mother and uh, my great-grandmother. So I think my greatest inspiration is my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, since I moved to the United States, we've been separated physically, but we have stayed in touch uh, in in many ways. So during the COVID time, um, I decided to really stay in touch with her a little bit more. For two years, I was calling her on WhatsApp and having a video conversation. And this story that, you know, I've wanted to write uh, for, for many years, you know, it became such an inspiration because it was easier for me to Find time out of uh, you know my days, uh, hold up in the house because of uh, COVID restrictions, yeah. to speak to my mother and and my sisters and my children, and I I got very inspired every single day that I spoke with them to keep writing and that's how I ended up finally pulling down the the story that I've been writing you know without writing it really uh, yeah. uh, it's all about my life but uh, the covid year two years of covid forced me to pull it together
0: one thing i really liked about home is us is the way that you laid out the chapters they're sort of in relatively short vignettes of things right. that happened in your past and in your life and I was almost thinking while I was reading it, like, I wonder if this is sort of how Africans go about storytelling. It's almost like each chapter was sort of like a a story that highlighted an episode or an event, a series of events that happened in your life.
1: Absolutely. And that's actually how I spoke to my mother and my sisters and my own children. I have two young adult children uh, aged uh, 26 and 24, a boy and a girl. And the way my mother told me the stories and my sisters and the same way I told to them is how I wrote it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really based on my oral tradition of storytelling and just pulling it down the way it is and the way the stories were told to me. And, and some of it is just going into my memory and getting some stories that have already been imprinted in there for many years um, and pulling, putting them down in ink. So it's more of a, an oral tradition because culturally I wasn't trained to write stories, but to tell them. Um, and so this was a, a great opportunity. And I think that's how come the chapters stand out that way. Each of, Each one of them is a story, but they all really are interlinked in very important ways. So they they just unfolded, as we told them. And what really shocked me is the fact that I didn't know all of these stories. You know, the conversations I had with my mother and my sisters helped me to, you know, even uh, remember them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some that I didn't remember at all, but to, to know new ones that I didn't know about because of the trauma. You know, for example, my sister had experienced watching my father assault a young woman who was living with us. Yeah. She, she didn't tell that story to anyone until I wrote this book. And she told us the story. Oh. So it was really a powerful time of healing and recollect, re- recollecting the, the shared trauma that we have um, had to endure.
0: Yeah, I think you did a great job with that sort of mm-hmm. preserving the oral tradition in a written form. So, good right. job on that. It really comes across um, as a wonderful way Thank of you. presenting it- your story.
1: Yeah, and that's why I included actually songs and prayers and spoken word, just the same way the stories were told to us and the same songs that we sang. Very powerful oral tradition, very, very important for for my heritage, yes.
0: Yeah. Let's Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the title for a moment, because you talk about Home is Us as a concept within the book, and I think it's an important one. So could you tell us a little bit how you arrived at the title and why that's important?
1: Yes, um, there are a lot of very painful stories in the book where, you know, it helped me to redefine what home is, because my home was oftentimes a, a war zone as I call it, because essentially, oftentimes, when you think about home, we think of home as a very peaceful and, you know, nice and lovely place. But it's not always like that. And I wanted to bring out the idea that home can be a warm and, and peaceful space and safe space for children and adults alike. But it can also be a space of hell. And uh, so how how do you find a place where the, there is, you know, safety and security and peace and love that is not necessarily a physical structure, you know, of a physical space of uh, what we call home in, in, in modern society, mostly Western society. We were displaced so many times uh, as little children uh, from my father's home, you know, because my mother was being bit up and, and sent away from, at my father's household just for the mere Reason that uh, she couldn't bear sons. And the violence that she experienced and that we experienced within the home really led me to redefine uh, what home is. And my mother first, you know, brought that idea up because we were displaced so many times from what we thought was home. It was a, a powerful way for her to, you know, cultivate that mental strength and in, in, in us, emotional mental strength, not. That home, it's about love. It's about relationship, relationships that are uh, loving and caring. You can find that anywhere else because we were not able to find that in a in a physical structure. I think that was very wise of my mother to help us to stay strong and and to heal from all of the violence that was happening around us within you know a home structure. And I think for all the women and men boys and girls that I've met through my work that assaulted and, you know, physically abused through sexual and gender-based violence, which happens, by the way, across all of the world, including here in the United States, it's it's a powerful concept to think of home as being us, as, you know, being that internal peace, peace with your soul, peace with yourself, peace with the people, others around you, having that relationship with others, rather than just uh, thinking of a home as a beautiful structure where, you know, you come, you come into and, and uh, you know, have enjoy a hot meal. And also the fact that even as an adult, I decided to migrate to the United States for work. It wasn't forced migration, I found that concept still very powerful for me because it was very difficult to separate myself and my children from the family back home in Kenya to this unknown place. Mm -hmm. But uh, the message for my mother was so poignant. Again, it was like, look, you're going to New York City. You don't know this place, but you have a space within yourself to create a home with your children and relationships and, and with us, even though we are miles and miles away. And it's, it's something that I've embraced to date. And it gives hope to people who are hopeless, especially when I just returned from Cox's Bazaar in, in Bangladesh. And so people were com- completely displaced from their homes. It gives them a lot of hope to know that they can have love and relationships and peace within them even though they don't have the the physical you know space that makes that uh, much more meaningful
0: yes i understand it's really an amazing message that your mother imparted to you and your sisters and if i recall correctly when you brought up that idea of home is us in the book it was shortly after you had been displaced because your mom chose to move the family from the home that she had built with a store because there was so much violence going on in the village and you ended up in a small concrete apartment that was very scary for everybody and your mother knew that she needed to create a feeling of safety and security as a family and just the emotional and psychological intelligence she had. To take care yeah. emotionally of her daughters, I think is just really amazing under incredibly trying and traumatic circumstances.
1: It's completely remarkable because, um, you know, I, I get emotional for for that piece because that's my my mother bought land for the first time, you know, because she we had been displaced so many times and she bought her own land, and after such a long struggle but there was community violence in that village and we had to leave that you know one of my my favorite uh, verses in the in the book is when i write about that home where she had bought her land and she actually brought the paper the title did, and made us touch the title did, you know, she said, this is my land, my own land, our land. It's our home. You know, finally, we were away from my father's land <laughs> and wow. she owned something, you know, as I write in the book here under the chapter that I, I call harvest, there was enough food to nourish us, you know, on market days, mama went with other women to the Nyakoe or Yugi's open markets, And she, you know, had the surplus. She uh, returned before dark with food or other items that we did not get uh, from the farm, from the shamba, such as books and batteries and fish and, you know, steak and baking flour and sugar and goodies. And she would also uh, teach us commerce by showing us cash savings from the sales of the surplus from her produce on the shamba and you know it was such a beautiful time to to see my mother thrive you know financially from being a farmer but also there was so much peace it's a big compound we ran around with other creatures you know Mm -hmm. frankly every creature was there birds and bats and trees and it was so natural and ecologically safe and we were eating from you know the grounds you know the work of our hands. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about even climate issues these days, this space was the best ecologically in terms of thriving physically, but also for the environment. And so when we were displaced from that space and you know, because of the communal violence that was happening there for folks who had bought the land, like my mother. And also it's a gender issue because she was a woman. Uh, she was so much you know less safe because her household was female headed and went into this space that was just so miserable. You're right that you know, my mother really helped us to, to find peace within us, to to, you know, not look at how much we had lost, you know, uh, to come into this urban dwelling, uh, kind of lots of a very different environment, poor urban dwelling that would have been devastating for us. But she helped us to find peace within us and to feel safe and secure. And, you know, one thing that I I think is very clever in in the way my mother and my great-grandparents helped us to grow that community within us was through psychosocial support. So we became like a, a little pack of <laughs> wolves or whatever. We're trying to survive together, you know, my mother and my two, my three, my two sisters, so three of us. And then we would go to my grandmother. So we we had this support network. I think for you, you would be thinking of clinical support, but it's for us it was psychosocial support that, you know, we depended on each other so much for survival.
0: Yeah, that was very, very clear in the book how much especially the women, the girls and the women supported each other. And so I definitely did see a sense of that psychosocial support, if you would call it that. But even more Mm -hmm. deeply than that, Jackie, I saw it as sort of women understanding each other and supporting each other in a community and an environment that was very oppressive in a lot of ways. And so sort of like a female empowerment of support, which I, I mean, this is your life's work, obviously. So I'm just um, reflecting back what I heard you write uh, in your book. So Jackie, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about your mother. She was obviously an incredibly influential person in your life and a major subject matter of the book that you wrote. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about what you have to say about your mom. What made her tick? What was she like as a person?
1: Oh, she still is alive. My mother is a 78 years old Yeah, Um, and she is just an incredible woman very strong I think of her as um, you know both very kind and also she can be a great fighter she's Mm. a great warrior so I'll I'll give you an example so for um, She had very limited choices in her life. For example, when when we were very young and I'm the last born of the three girls and my grandmother, you know, I was very ill at a certain point and my grandmother wanted to, you know, say just remove the blanket that covers her uh, and let her die because Mm -hmm. I, I was premature and I had whooping cough. And my mother fought for my life. You know, she said she was not going to let me die. So she 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 would fight for her daughters with everything that she had. And I remember another time my, my father had wanted her to move from you know, the, the village where uh, she had bought land and to return to his home. Um, and she said she will not move even when he threatened that she, she would die there with her daughter. She said, so what if we died? I mean, it was better for her to die there than to die on his farm. Yeah. So she, she really fought this uh, very harmful cultural practices that were there. And they're built on the positive uh, cultural practices that were there as well. The cultural practice of community, of love and care for others. She really built on that. So she was both a very loving, and she still is, very loving person, but also she would fight for what is right and what is good. I think in a community where violence is so normalized, like uh, when we were growing up and most of the time, and there were no legal systems to hold anyone accountable. I think that she was very persevering. She has a great endurance, a great spirit of uh, endurance. My mother wears a smile 24-7. She will be Mm. You know, one of the chapters I write about in the book is laughter. Mm -hmm. Even when, you know, something so horrible happens to her, she would still be smiling. And I think, you know, as I reference in the book, like uh, Maya Angelou's poem, We Wear the Mask, sometimes it's really wearing the mask her laughter is to mask the pain yeah. but i also think that her laughter is very genuine she's a very genuine human being she's truly happy to see me when or her grandchildren or anybody else um and you know one of the other story the, the other point about my mother is i think she's very perceptive she can see the cycle of violence So one thing I struggled so much with when I was growing up is the way she still treated my father and my grandmother, paternal grandmother, who had really mistreated her. She still was very human to them. And I, that really used to trouble me as a young child and then as a young adult, I used to be like, people who treat you badly, you treat them badly too. Uh, but my mother constantly, you know, reminded me about not being revengeful, you know, like, of course you should hold people accountable, but there's a difference between holding people accountable and having vengeance and, and wanting to revenge because that ends up harming you. So she has a lot of wisdom and the way she treated them in very human ways helped me to see their humanity too and to see that they had been abused as well. As I write in the story, my my great-grandmother had undergone the similar beatings from her father-in-law, the same way she beat my mother up. She had been beaten up by Mm -hmm. her father-in-law and other relatives and just out of her own homestead you know where her she had been married and she also you know helped me to see my father's humanity because he himself had been almost often because of colonial uh, practices where the father had been uh, gone to take care of uh, the white master in a place called Turi uh, during the colonial time you know she, he, the father became, you know, a houseboy for a, a white master's British colonial rule. And the, the mother left because she had been chased away by the grandfather. So my father really and ha- his siblings grew out, up like orphans by themselves. They didn't really have that parental love from a father and, and a mother. But that's something that, you know, my mother helped me to see. And it was a struggle because it's very hard dehumanize uh, perpetrators and and I had learned from my my father who othered my mother all the time every time you know my mother was a thing a snucky thing an ugly thing and you know that, that was the spirit I had. I wanted to portray him as this just horrible, horrible person, which he was a, a bad, he had really bad actions. But my mother constantly helped me to see his, his uh, humanity and his hurting, you know, that hurting, hurting people hurt others. He was an alcoholic that he too needed you know, love and, and, uh, and support and help. I didn't get to that point of <laughs> yeah. loving my father but before he died, but I, I, I thank my mom for that wisdom and, and that spirit of, you know, love, but also holding people accountable. She never once, you know, agreed with my father's actions or my grandmother's actions, but she was able to humanize them.
0: Yeah, well, again, that kind of psychological insight and awareness that your mother has and had while you were growing up is pretty extraordinary because right. it would be very difficult for most people growing up in that environment to feel anything but hatred toward perpetuators of violence. Yeah. And I, I know, Jackie, that the the complex social and political and economic aspects of Kenyan society are probably way too complex for us to delve into today on this show. And I know they're complicated. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we could focus a little bit though, on the attitudes toward females, the gender dynamics and what you experienced, Mm -hmm. because that was something that more than anything you described in your book. And frankly, it was very, very difficult to read many right. aspects of that. Right. It was hard and hard to mm. comprehend, I think, especially from a Westerner's point of view, who mm-hmm. has no experience in a culture like that, to try to understand what's going on, where are these gender dynamics are coming from, and why this is occurring, and also how to think about that without being really judgmental about a culture that I have no participation in. It, it was hard to wrap my head around. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about kind of your experiences with these gender dynamics growing up and how you felt and what it all means. Like, how can we put some of this in some perspective that Mm -hmm. is understandable?
1: Yeah. And actually, um, I remember when I first studied gender and development studies, I thought, oh, wow, this is like a flashback on my life. Yeah. The gender roles and relations was so revealing of my own personal experience. Uh, so the, the culture that I grew up in, uh, in southwestern Kenya, uh, had a lot of, you know, beautiful things. It's because I don't want to portray it as a pathology. And that's one thing I have avoided to do in the book. Yeah. But it also had a lot of uh, um, harmful cultural practices and, you know, gender roles and gender norms. I think one of those very harmful gender norms and roles is that women couldn't own land, you know. And this is actually, when I looked at it from a a more critical perspective, and this book really helped me to do that research, it's not a Kenyan thing. Ownership of land is more of a colonial thing. Through the colonial period, you know, the British protectorate was for East Africa. And uh, the British owned, of course, all the land in East Africa, which included Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania before those countries were split into three and uh, then they also you know, had, a few people had rights to land um, because they, it was an agrarian and they needed to cultivate the land and get the, the money uh, taxes paid to the British empire. And so those ideals of land ownership actually are also a colonial system Mm -hmm. uh, because then you know kenya shifted eventually after independence like many countries that have been colonized into land ownership and the land ownership by law was initially of course it was only for british and indian people and then uh, it eventually shifted only to men and those were also based on victorian ideals that only men would own property I think most of the time we we think that the gender norms and and roles are so particular to a certain culture, but they actually, I think Western cultures uh, have also been very influential influential Mm -hmm. in, you know, the way that they have uh, shaped or reshaped African gender roles. I think the most difficult one for me was that land ownership. And that's Mm -hmm. why I have a chapter I call Land Owner. When someone doesn't own land, especially when they depend on land for livelihood, but they also depend on it for, you know, living, for habitation, then you can kick them around and, you know, do anything you want and they won't have a place to go. Um, And so I think that's the, the most dangerous thing that happens to women and girls across the world is that they cannot own property, whether it's by law. Uh, Now, Kenya has a law, of course, where women can own land, but it's not the same. I mean, it's still difficult for women to own land because culturally it's not acceptable. Same for for any other property inheritance of companies that, you know, were initially started uh, within families that are passed on to male children. That's a very harmful cultural practice of land ownership that happens in my village and what happens across all over the world, including in the West. And it's not just an African thing. I think the British colonial empire did a lot of harm in the Mm -hmm. ways that they organized that gender norm. The other one that I I want to quickly talk about is about gender roles. You know, the fact that women would do all the, the work, you know, household work. And still, my mother was a school teacher, but she still had to do everything else still run the farm and, you know, be a school teacher and take care of the children. Uh, This gender norm is is really very sad. And it's the same for my great-grandmother, Nyatundo, whom I write about in the book. She did, you know, all the work when the, the men were, you know, out drinking or smoking or, you know, having all the fun. And this too, as I write in the book, is disrupted by colonial rule because you remember I said that my Paternal grandfather was actually a cook. He was a houseboy for a white master. So those roles were encouraged and supported by British colonial rule. They would hire men to leave their families and go uh, in the village and go and work in places where there was white settlements, as they could do feminine jobs like cooking mm-hmm. for some pay, but they wouldn't do those kinds of roles at home. So that really shifted the ways in which gender roles were shaped uh, pre-colonial time. Now, am I saying that pre-colonial time, the roles were better shaped and and the relationships? uh, Not exactly, but I think that the colonial time worsened those gender roles. But there there is hope because always, as we say, gender roles and relations and, and behaviors and attitudes, they are not static. They change over time. And that's that's the same for any country, including the Western culture, that those things are not fixed, they, they change over time. And those those gender roles and norms that I grew up in have shifted a lot. A lot. And that's why my mother still owns land. I own mm-hmm. land. Mm-hmm. I actually own a house here in the United States. So it's it things have shifted in and, and we, you know, writing this book really helped me to to focus on that shift and to also say, let's not pathologize a certain culture because it's influenced also by the West. And let's look at the history of gender roles and relations and say that the West has also come a long way. Uh, I, I do argue with my colleagues that, you know, when did we allow women to vote here in the United States or to go to work? Even when they went to World War, they were just nurses. They were not really considered veterans. So it's it takes a, a long time for cultures to shift in terms of how they view women's work and whether they value it and how they value women uh, to let them own property and and be fully citizens in the community. And those roles, I think the book is interesting in the fact that it engages those dynamics of gender roles in the African context and especially in East Africa.
0: I think so. And what you're saying about the British colonial rule in Africa, it's almost like setting up gender dynamics uh, from the Mm -hmm. get go to be problematic. Right. In terms of land ownership and also, and I'd like to talk a little bit about your father because he's an important figure in the book you wrote and his behavior mm-hmm. toward you and your sisters and your mother, how he might be an example of the gender dynamics that, that were set up from that. So can we talk mm-hmm. a little bit about your father? What, what what was he like and what can you say about him? <laughs> Yeah, I,
1: I I think growing up, I just didn't care to know him much. I had a lot of hatred and anger uh, towards him. But yeah. this book helped me to see him a little bit more from another lens. So, look, my father was my both my father and mother grew up. Uh, they were born into the colonial rule and they grew up and got married in actually just a year after Kenya became independent so essentially they're products of the colonial rule yeah because that's all they knew they were born into a a British colony and grew up teenagers into a British their entire education so my father spoke English with a British accent he never spoke Swahili or Kisi Mm. which are the local languages because During his period, if you spoke a local language, you were given a disk, it's called a disk in class, and you got punished for speaking the local language. Mm -hmm. they were training the young boys because his father worked uh, for a white master. He went to a boarding school, which was run by the the, uh, white missionaries and he learned English with a British accent. He had a lot of pride. You know, it was like a caricature of, you know, a a white black male, you know, which is very sad because I don't think he really understood his identity. So, when you see in my book that I say that he always insulted my mother that she was stupid. My mother had an accent and my father, you know, and he had an accent, obviously, but he he endeavored to speak, you know, as British as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he despised anybody else who didn't speak English with that proper accent. So I think he was really... A troubled man. He grew up, uh, as I said, by himself and his siblings, you know, just in in the village uh, without parental guidance. He went to school. He excelled very well in school, but he didn't get into college. So he was, he worked for the British bank, which is called Barclays Bank for the East Africa Protectorate. So the British system did train Africans like my father to become something, you know, as, but the, my father didn't. I don't think that he ever felt like he was good enough, uh, but that's what he projected on people like my mother because he was just a clerk. But that's the best position a black person would have in the in, in the Barclays Bank, and so he worked there for a short while. And he also, you know, tried to become a teacher. He was an, a complete alcoholic, very, very abusive. He just had no regard for women and, and girls. He he assaulted a young woman uh, sexually. I think he assaulted many uh, young women sexually. So I wonder, I wish I had had the opportunity to speak with him, to see what kind of life he led, even in boarding school, whether he himself um, had been a sorted you know it's hard to know but he was really a troubled man there's no single day i saw him so bad actually mm-hmm. except you know like very early in the morning mm-hmm. before he would brush his teeth and dress up in a suit like a, a western person to go to work so he he was really a very bad product of uh, colonial rule and african culture that you know he just couldn't find himself and he he was a very troubled man very violent
0: Yeah. The word that came to mind when I was reading the book was shame when it came to your father, because just the way that he treated your mother Mm -hmm. so condescendingly and humiliating her and, and obviously acting in very abusive and violent sort of ways to me really sounded like a person who was projecting out whatever he was feeling on the inside and abusing Mm -hmm. and taking that out on other people. And one thing that struck out for me, Jackie, and this came up several times in your book, was Mm -hmm. this idea of him being humiliated by other people for not having a son.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So I think that the cycle of violence is so damaging. So for my father, First of all, he witnessed his own mother being beat up when he was very young Mm -hmm. and he couldn't protect her. So I think he carried that over and, you know, was beating his own wife in front of his own little children. So you're right, I think he was very powerless and and, and ashamed. But at the same time, you're right, the cultural practice of, you know, not valuing girls, uh, so that it really hurt him. When we were young adults and, you know, going to uh, high school and and stuff like that, and my mother was uh, out of the reproductive age, so it was clear that he was not going to ever bear a, a, a son, you know, he, he just, he was abused all the time. He was told that he's an uncircumcised woman, which is the lowest uh, denigration you can give a human being. It's like a subhuman. Uh, So he was othered as much as he othered my mother. He was, he was subhuman. He didn't have a belonging if, and he loved, remember I've said he wanted to, to be this powerful man who worked for the bank, you mm-hmm. know, who, who is very intelligent. But anytime he would stand in front of a crowd, and they would boo him. They would say, sit down, you woman. Uh, you're not, you mm-hmm. don't deserve to stand and speak in front of men. And if he, 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 re, he responded violently, as I said, like he would threaten to beat them, they would say they, they are going to you know, smash him because they, he doesn't even have sons who can defend him. So the only time he found his voice is after we had finished university and we were employed. And he would tell these people, look, you know, I may not have sons, but I have daughters and they have work and they have money and they can hire the police and stuff like that. So it's so ironic that the daughters became the the ones that uh, redeemed him um yeah. you know after after we had managed to beat this structure and, and system of patriarchy and and get ourselves you know educated and uh empowered and 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 we were the ones that almost, you know, kind of came to save his face. Um, and that's when he also decided that he was going to give his land to us because, you know, the property of a man who doesn't own their uh, sons is supposed to go to the children of his brother. And uh, mm-hmm. so our, uh, the, my father's land was supposed to go to my cousins, my male cousins. But he said before he died that, you know, his land was our land. So he really did put on a struggle uh, towards the last days of his life to, you know, stand up for us and as his daughters and to claim uh, our and reclaim our space uh, within the community, which was very helpful. But uh, most of his life was really uh, very miserable. He was abused himself and he abused very,
0: very much. Yeah, I could tell the when you were writing about that toward the end of the book, how much ambivalence or even rejection you had about your father suddenly supporting his daughters uh, emotionally and saying, I'm going to give you my land when I die, you know, sort of like, well, great, this is sort of too little, too late. We'll take yep. the land. Thank mm-hmm. you. But You know, now you get to claim that we're your pride and joy after so many years of abuse. That must have been quite difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these norms are so acceptable that you shouldn't question them. So even writing the book is a a source of agency and power for me Mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm rejecting them publicly and I'm saying, I don't care what you think whether you want us to keep this secretly as home, uh, within the home, uh, but these things need to to come out there and and we should be angry and and disgusted by these kinds of practices and and reject them and not excuse them. Um, And so I I was really very intentional in in making my feelings felt, and, and I'm glad you 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 saw that feeling like you know this is a struggle that should would have been beautiful if my father and my mother had been involved in fighting this cultural practice right from the beginning yeah so, i uh, thought you yeah. i
0: thought you did an amazing job writing the book being very authentic and and honest and it really really came through with your writing I wanted to ask you, there was a chapter that really stuck out for me and maybe it's because I'm a psychologist that Mm -hmm. I resonated with it so much, but it was the chapter that you titled Mad Woman. And this was when you move, when your mom had decided to move you away from the village where she owned land Mm -hmm. because of all the violence going on. You moved to this very scary, I think of it as like a big concrete apartment building that is sort of lifeless. I don't know if that is actually what it was like, but that was the image I got. And of course, you mm-hmm. found ways of decorating it, making it more like home. But there was a woman who lived next door, I guess, in the apartment mm-hmm. who was, well, for lack of better way of putting it, acting crazy. And it was scary for you moving into this new place and having her live next door. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the woman who you labeled Madwoman in the chapter, and what she represents as part of your story.
1: Yes, um, thank you. I, I mean that story is, is I start that chapter with uh, a nightmare, really. You know, because for me it was like a nightmare. We've already moved from this peaceful place of where my mother had bought land to this. It's it is a concrete building. But, uh, you know, the floor is concrete, but the walls are made of uh, iron sheets, very cheap iron sheets. So they make a certain uh, horrifying sound when Mm. you touch them. So the the, the mad woman is, for me, uh, you know, uh, symbolic of all the the women and girls who have survived the sexual and gender-based violence, especially because, you know, she was... Probably just homeless, like we all were, uh, trying to find a space, a safe space to survive. And uh, what happened? is that uh, every single night there was uh, a, a male you know uh, a, a normal looking male who went into the room she was trying to occupy because she didn't she didn't rent that room it was open space and uh, she they sexually assaulted her every single night mm. and there was no protection for her there was no place for her to, to find safety and security. And when, when I think about, her, I think about all the other girls that I write about in the book, the Nyamoita, who was my mother's uh, help, uh, who actually got assaulted by my father and my sister w- witnessed that. Um, and also the young woman that uh, who was my own help uh, who got assaulted by the father of my children. And so I think about, you know, I think she did struggle with mental health because, I mean, how can you note The sexual and gender-based violence can uh, lead to mental health problems? But, uh, you know, there was a lot of stigma that is associated with the survivors like her and uh, all of us uh, who have survived uh, sexual and gender-based violence. There is a... Uh, a lot of rejection so it's a symbol of uh, rejection because if you call someone mad then you can reject them you can say they are crazy they they lost their head um they lost them they lost their mind but really it's just a a symbolism of of rejection and the women i write about uh who are really real people my my grand great grandparents like nyatundo the way they found ways to cope with this was, was to, to cry, to, you know, to behave as if they were mad, or to sing about it. My, my great-grandmother would sing about it or tell stories about it. It, it was like the, the story my, my grandmother always told of, about uh, uh, a monster who was being carried on piggyback. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's 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 real human people who are monsters, you know, that as a child, I would think, oh, it's it must be an actual monster. You know, it's not a it's not a human being. But when when I grew up, I realized, oh, my goodness. Yeah, those are human beings who are being abusive to women. So. She's really important uh, in my life uh, when I reflect about her and in the story, because every time I find uh, women uh, and men and uh, girls and boys who have survived violence and they share their stories, I I believe them and I can understand uh, where they're coming from. Uh, I'll give you a quick story. One of the young women I met in, in Bangladesh is, uh, intersex, and there's a lot of stigma in the camps, of obviously, and everywhere, uh, of those kinds of people. But she told me she was born with both genitalia, you know, male and female, not fully formed. She's rejected and raped and mm. abused in, in the community. Mm. Uh, if, it's, it's just, and then people uh, her, reject her. There's a lot of stigma. Oh, she, she's LGBTQI. They put you in a box. It's, it's really, really mm-hmm. uh, important to understand that uh, we we are very quick to place people who go through so much suffering into a certain box, rather than to address the root causes of the the trauma or the problems that they're experiencing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you began talking a little bit about what I think is the second part of the title of your book, Hope and Resilience. Mm -hmm. And boy, your mom embodies that like nobody else, like that really comes through. And I'm wondering if you could spend a few minutes talking about that. What made her resilient? What gave her the sense of hope and to be able to transmit those things to her daughters? Where does it come from?
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh, um, (laughs) it's hard to know where, where exactly it comes from. I think it's, She just she 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 just didn't want to give up, you know, uh, hope. And she so I think one of it, she learned from her own mother, who was a single parent at a very early age because her husband died. And so she had to take care of all of them. And my mother was the firstborn, and she would see how my great grand, my grandmother, not great grandmother, you know, struggled uh, to educate them and, and, you know, feed them and and do everything that she could so that they could survive. So I think she did learn it from her mother and her grandmother, who is my great grandmother Mm -hmm. that she lived with for many years. But I also think that she's a woman of faith. She had to believe in something bigger than herself. Much of what she gave us was that faith. Like you have to believe in something bigger than yourself when you're about to give up hope completely because there are no choices. There are no good choices. There is hopelessness all around you. You gotta hold on to something bigger than yourself. And I think that component of faith helped her to, to keep going. And then the, the last one I think is, is uh, just that human connection to her children and to the people that she loved. So she couldn't give up hope for us. Uh, it, it, I mean, if she gave up hope, then we wouldn't survive. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that uh, I don't wanna call it maternal instinct because not all mothers do that, but she had that desire to protect her children Um, and to fight for them, and and to redeem herself in in a way, because she was the mother of girls who are considered, you know, she was considered barren. So she had to prove herself. So I think those three things really combined to give her this spirit of of hope. But when it comes to resilience, I think she set up structures that enabled her resilience. One of them, as I said, is what we, we call it in the social sciences, uh, psychosocial support. She had a lot of psychosocial support from her you know, mother. Uh, she had friends and sisters. And even us, she made us like a little psychosocial support group for her. So that really helped. And then the other structure was the physical structure. Remember, she bought land. Um, She had an earning, she had a salary for herself, um, she worked, she had employment, uh, she, she was able to repurchase land after she lost the first land, I mean she moved out of there because of the insecurity, she owned a shop. Over time. So she was an entrepreneur. She wanted to be independent and autonomous. She sought for that. And so she created a structure for her to actually free herself from violence and insecurity because. She had physical structures um, and financial structures, economic structures that would enable her to have some level of independence and autonomy. So it's, it's very hard for women and girls to build resilience if they don't have those kinds of structures, economic, financial structures, physical structures like access to land, you know, she had a full-time job, didn't pay her well, but she had, she, she was earning money and she was educated. So I think the education, the finance, the, the access to land, all those physical things are very important for building resilience. And then the in, internal ones and, uh, you know, the, the bigger ones of faith and that spirit of hope and not giving up then they worked together to make a very resilient,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah. So Jackie, I want to ask you a more personal question. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I read your book, there were very few, if if any positive males in the book whatsoever that you mentioned, Uh, maybe there was one or two, but they don't come to mind. And you've obviously, witnessed and been involved with so much violence against, uh, women in your family, including yourself. How do you go about living in a world with 50% men out there in the world, having (laughs) gone through the life that you've had? Like, I would think like resentment and hatred. I know you probably don't feel that way, but how do you have perspective on that, that allows you to coexist with males? Yeah, that's a good question.
1: And, you know, my mom has a saying that I always laugh with her about, she says that all men are the same. It's just the trousers that are different. (laughs) (laughs) The pants that they wear that are different. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, I look at my son, I have a 24 year old son Mm. and I have a 26 year old daughter and uh, I have faith. I believe he's he's a, a wonderful young man. I've met wonderful, many, many uh, wonderful men, both young and and adult men. Uh, so I have faith in men. I do have faith. In fact, most of my work, I'm an advocate for what we call constructive male engagement. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Even my most recent uh, travel for work uh, was actually focusing on what we call uh, new beginnings project with USAID, which focuses on constructive male engagement as one of its components. Mm -hmm. So I'm one of the proponents of positive masculinity, um, male engagement programs that are constructive. And I have all the faith in, in men. It's just been unfortunate that within my family, there hasn't been enough good role models, any at all, actually, in the in the story. I couldn't find any.
0: Yeah.
1: But uh, hopefully by telling this story, we're breaking that cycle of violence. This story has been read to my son and daughter over and over again. And my hope is that we'll break that cycle of uh, engaging with men who are violent and that uh, you, you know there will be a new generation in my family at least, yeah. um, where they they engage with uh, you know men who are positive. I have uh, my son obviously, and I also have two nephews uh, who are from the, my sister. So we I have some really. Uh, direct family members who are male um, and my hope is that they will turn out to be positive role models, not just for my family, but for for the rest of the family.
0: What are your kids and your nephews reaction to reading your book?
1: Oh, the same reaction with with the girls, really. They are are very touched Mm -hmm. and uh, moved by the stories and and the agency and, and power of the women. They are also very disgusted by the forms of violence that uh, were there and perpetrated. Yeah, so hopefully this will break that cycle and help them, you know, to build more positive masculinities and be better role models uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, for for their own families or friends and and communities where they, they live and serve.
0: I'm sure it will. Yeah, yeah. So Jackie, this has really been a wonderful conversation to have with you about your book and your reflections upon it. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts that you would like to leave us with today.
1: I do. You know, I want to read a section of the book here that It's one of the most difficult chapters that I write about. It's about uh, one of the harmful cultural practices of female genital cutting that Mm. I had to endure. And I wanted to share about how I coped with that. It's important for people to think about survival. So, you know, in times when there is so much violence, how do you survive? and to find that uh, component of survival uh, that can help you to come through that phase of violence. And then you know you can thrive uh, after you get out of there and you can find solutions to that problem. For me, that was through the songs and prayers and spoken word and the psychosocial support from my mother, my great grandmother, my grandmother, my sisters, and now my two children. I think this phrase here, though it's this uh, paragraph I'm about to read, although it's difficult, is just an embodiment of uh, the hope and resilience and the strive to, to get out of uh, these forms of violence that are very painful. And how do we? get that inner strength and, and continue to fight. And, and it's what really drives me to keep on fighting for women's rights and for the empowerment of, of women and girls and to tell my story even, even though it's very difficult.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: my grand, great-grandmother Nyatundo stood erect as her voice drummed out the spoken word poetry, directing her hard work, her daily struggles, with nature, with family, with the community, and even with herself. She prayed, imploring the souls of the dead, the attitude of self, and even the stolen childhood innocence. She prayed for healing and protection. She pounded out conversational songs hanging on every word as if she was giving instruction. I lost myself in song as every space in my little world was filled with dark, powerful, and intelligent girls, brilliantly colored birds, and all kinds of undying feminine creatures, living and non-living, roaming the goosey highlands like weaver birds. Searching for freedom. So Mm. I was a little girl, you know, and I found something to hold on to Mm. and search for freedom. And I'm older now and I'm still fighting for the freedom of myself and other women and girls across the world. So I pray that uh, we continue to work together, men and women, boys and girls, to struggle for gender equality and social inclusion.
0: Jackie, that's a beautiful thing to work toward. And thank you for being here in the world to help people find their way and to provide a guiding light for that. And for sharing your experiences that you grew up with as an inspiration coming from your mother and your grandmother and the strong women in your family to help be a guiding force for you.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this chance to share and and chat with you.
0: Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikahealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to MindTricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of MindTricks. Please take some time to give MindTricks a good rating and review wherever you're listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share MindTricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.